Welcome to the Morning Dove Podcast. I'm Allie Felker, and I'm so glad that you're here. In this space, we seek to normalize the grief journey and increase empathy by sharing stories of loss. If you have a story or an insight to share, email me at AllieRoseFelker at gmail.com. To join our grief community and engage with the podcast, add us on Instagram at MorningDevePod. Now, on to the episode. friends. Welcome to another episode of The Morning Dove. Today, I am honored to share Christine's story. Christine is the mama of three little boys. Her third son, Harlan, unfortunately passed away when he was just four days old. And today, I am just so honored to share his story and how Christine navigated his diagnosis and held the hope that she would be taking him home uh, despite the difficulties that he would be having and the life that he would need to live as a little baby on dialysis. So without further ado, here is Harlan's story as told by his mama, Christine. Hi, Christine. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Doing good. I'm glad that we um, found the time to be able to chat about your story. And I just know that it's going to help a lot of people um, to kind of look into this aspect of um, of child loss. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you having me. And I like speaking about my son. So this is a good opportunity for me as well. Awesome. Yeah, so wherever you'd like to begin, um, please go ahead and share Harlan's story. Sure. So I found myself pregnant with my third child um, towards the beginning of the pandemic, um, and it was not planned at all. I was really somewhat devastated. Like my immediate response on getting the um, positive pregnancy test was just shock and fear. And just like my response was just, I, I started crying and it wasn't good. And I remember telling myself like, okay, well, I'm going to give you two weeks to figure this out and get, get used to this idea Um, And if you miscarry in between, then it's going to be okay. Like, I don't know why I did that. But anyway, that was my mental state when I found out I was pregnant, was not ready for a third child at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So anyway, the weeks went on and eventually, you know, you, you get used to it and then you kind of get excited, um, uh, start planning for your future and all of that. Um, So everything was going just fine. I wanted to get a consult together with my high-risk doctor for some other um, complications that I had with my first two pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Um, So I scheduled that and um, ended up doing my midterm anatomy scan with my high-risk doctor who I had never met at this point. I switched providers. Um, So went in just excited to find out, you know, gender, all of the things that parents want to do at the midterm anatomy scan. Um, 
So anyway, we, we get started with that and the technician immediately um, sees a, a problem on, on the scan. Um, and she says, well, that's quite a big cystic structure. And I could see it, that's all I could see was this big black circle on the ultrasound and then maybe his spine, but I couldn't um, see anything else. And that was pretty much the entirety of that scan was just spine, oop, big black dot, spine, big black dot. And it took probably about an hour for the, for the ultrasound technician to even um, let us know like, oh, you're having a boy, um, which eventually they were able to find that um, and now knowing what I know, like it was probably pretty clear to them that um, my child was a, a boy because of the condition that he um, mm -hmm. ended up being diagnosed with um, shortly after. So um, kind of the most horrendous um, scan experience just um immediately, you know, the excitement was taken from the room. Um, when we got the bad, like bad news, I didn't know what news it was, but I knew it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was alone. So my husband, Caleb, wasn't allowed to be there because of this was all during COVID. Um, so then doctor comes in and, um, explains what it is that we were seeing. And um, she let me know that um, it looked like Harlan, which we hadn't named him at that point, but um, our baby had a lower, lower urinary tract obstruction, otherwise, or other words um, referred to as Ludo. Um, and it was really quite serious. So um, it's a very insignificant malformation in the urinary tract, which allows, which doesn't allow urine to pass into the amniotic sac, which I'm not sure if you do or not, yeah. but amniotic fluid is urine. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> um, so, um, I had about three centimeters of fluid at 19 weeks, which is really, really low. Mm. Um, normal is closer to 12 or 15 centimeters. Um, Harlan's kidneys were enlarged um, and his bladder was also very enlarged. So that big black six stick structure was his bladder and it mm. was larger than his head. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, there's a lot to take in at that, that appointment. I asked a few, a few questions. I mean, overall the, I feel like the diagnosis is one that's easy to understand. Um, he was looking at kidney failure. Um, if that had not already occurred, Mm -hmm. Um, there's no way to really tell, um, in utero other than by doing tests on urine samples. Um, uh, he, again, the, the biggest concern was that I had no fluid. So without fluid, 
um, baby's lungs cannot develop, like the little internal structures in their lungs. So it's not just about size, but the way that they actually operate and are able to do um, like oxygenation. Um, and so critical lung development is between 16 and 24 weeks. We're already halfway through that period and he's been without fluid for, for a lot of it. Um, so that was the picture that we were getting. Um, and in, in that um, first meeting with my high-risk doctor, she, she gave us the option um, that we could terminate the pregnancy for medical reasons, um, because this is generally thought to be incompatible with life if you do not um, pursue intervention. Um, and then she also let us know that we might be able to do some things in order to get him the fluid that he needs, but we need to run some tests and I needed to get in contact with um, fetal surgeons. Um, so yeah, my immediate response was that I can't kill my baby. Like I can't terminate this pregnancy. Um, Uh, so she said that, well, we need to get you in contact with the fetal surgeon. So, um, that's kind of where this all started. <laughs> so shortly after that, um, what we did, what we started down the route of doing testing. So at my local, um, uh, OB, we did a vesicosynthesis, which is like an amniocentesis only they take the fluid from the bladder instead of the amniotic sac. So that was the first time he got to take a real pee, I guess. Um, and then his urine was sent off for genetic testing as well as, um, I don't even know what all they test on the urine, but essentially to test how well his kidneys were functioning. Mm. Um, so that's where we started. Um, here and then we set up a consultation with the um, fetal care team um, which was several states away from ours so um, a three-hour plane ride to the fetal surgeon team um, to do like a full full workup um, a fetal MRI echocardiogram just the whole to get a better picture of what's going on with baby um, so that happened two weeks after um, the initial scan. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's kind of all of the diagnosis side of things. Wow. What was it like for you um, being pregnant when you had the diagnosis? Like I know for me, even just like going to the grocery store, someone sees your belly and is like, oh my gosh, congratulations, you know, or, or things like that. Did you have any of those experiences or were there any moments where you, you know, had to kind of balance sort of the reaction of people seeing you being pregnant and then also this diagnosis? 
So I think that COVID kind of insulated me from mm -hmm. that at least a little bit because really I wasn't seeing anyone. And mm -hmm. um, thinking back on it was just, it's actually really hard because I hadn't even, like I hadn't announced on like social media or anything that we were pregnant. I was just going to wait until after we knew if we were having a boy or a girl like to post that. Um, so a lot of me was just feeling like no one even knows like anything of what's going on here. Like they don't know I'm pregnant. They don't. So like later on, even like after he died, I had to be like, I don't know if you knew I was pregnant at all, but yeah. my, my son died. Um, and then like really get into this really long story. Um, but yeah, I think navigating people's comments um, in the preg in during pregnancy was pretty hard sometimes because mm -hmm. people wouldn't understand how serious this was. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like people will often try to comfort you by saying like, it's gonna be okay. And I've learned that you don't tell people it's gonna be okay. Cause you don't know like what right do you have to tell someone it's gonna be okay? Because you know what, it ended up not being okay. Yeah. Um, and we went through all of what I'm sure I will share later, all of what we went through. And um, you know, I didn't get to take my son home. so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It wasn't okay. <laughs> and then with all of this additional monitoring and everything, I mean, we're both in the U.S. where healthcare is not um, great. <laughs> um, did you, I mean, was all of this out of pocket? Was it something that, I mean, because pregnancy in and of itself can be expensive depending on like what you, really what you do for a living. But um, how was that for you? Um, I'm going to say it was mostly mostly smooth, but really not without some hiccups. And in fact, I'm still um, fighting some medical bills. I think it's all going to work out okay. But, you know, when this is all said and done, like billed to insurance, my entire medical um, costs for 2020 were in excess of a million dollars. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I remember at some point fairly recently, I'm just getting fed up with insurance and medical bills and like trying to even understand this system and like, like, why is this one bill being treated this way? And this one's being treated another invited one service, which was the same service that I received, you know, three weeks prior, mm -hmm. you know, three times as expensive and how is insurance applying all of this? So I kind of ended up, I feel like I know more about insurance than ever, but, um, but I got pretty frustrated because I still looking at the end of this, I was looking at like a $30,000 bill, which I mm -hmm. like out of pocket. And I was like, eventually I just talked to my well, I, 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 anyone who would listen. So the billing supervisors at the hospital, my insurance representatives, like anyone who would listen, I would just say, listen, my, my baby died and yeah. I need someone to take care of this for me because I'm just so exhausted. I've been in an appeals process for over a year. Like, 
someone figure it out for me. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I feel like when you get the bill, it's like, it just adds so much insult to injury where it's like, cool, thanks. I have already been through hell and now I have to pay for going through hell. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So then what was, what was your decision process like? Like when you were going through all of these tests, was it still like, we're just gonna keep pushing forward? What, um, what was that like for the rest of the pregnancy? Yeah, so um, there aren't a lot of like conditions that you can, or diagnoses that you can receive in which you can actually intervene. Mm. Um, so mine, like in Harlan's diagnosis is one that you can possibly, um, there are uh, just a few, um, requirements in order to move forward with intervention. Um, and so like the decision process went from like, I, we needed to, well, first off, we started doing some research on our own, like what are his chances um, of survival? What would his quality of life look like even if we did intervene? Um, you know, asking all of those questions, like what do we want for our son um, and kind of getting an idea of um, what we might do when presented with additional information because we were still in a very, very much so like a discovery phase of um, all of this. So Caleb and I did that together um, in private. And then, you know, we also got some resources from the um, various um, providers that we went to. Um, so in order to go move forward with intervention for Ludo, um, your baby has to be a male and that that is related to like if if baby is a female that this is generally caused by something else um and there's going to be more complications so baby has to be a male um they have to have somewhat functioning kidneys meaning that they can still produce urine because if they're not urinating anymore no matter what you do there's not going to be fluid around the baby Mm -hmm. um, and the next one was no chromosomal issues. Um, so in most cases, this is not related to any kind of genetic abnormality, mm -hmm. um, but it can be. And if it is, you know, babies with um, genetic conditions just have, you know, more medical complications. Um, so adding on kidney failure and all of that, um, I think it's just the, what the medical profession has decided, like, you know, do no harm mm -hmm. um, here. Like there's nothing we can do for your baby if they have heart conditions, kidney conditions, you know, just everything. Um, so they're just put at a larger disadvantage. So um, I think there's another one and I honestly can't remember it. Um, which is weird, but um, anyway, throughout all the testing, um, we learned that he was eligible. He didn't have chromosomal issues or genetic issues. 
um, and he was still urinating. So we made the decision. We knew that like, if he was eligible for surgery, we wanted to go forward with that. Um, if he was not eligible for surgery, surgery, we would have, um, consider and we probably would have made the decision to terminate for medical reasons because mm-hmm. um we felt like that was the right and merciful thing to do mm-hmm. um you know the medical literature says that mortality approaches 100% if you don't intervene and we didn't want him to be in any more pain um and like my pregnancy was not easy mentally. Yeah. Um, it was horrendous. And so just, yeah, we felt like it would have been the best decision for our family. Mm-hmm. But he, he was not, um, he was eligible. So we did move forward. And we had decided that he was going to have a good quality of life. Um, he would be on dialysis until he could receive a kidney transplant. Mm-hmm. He would probably be looking at three kidney transplants or more in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, he was looking at a few like physical delays. Um, but overall, we felt like he was going to have a good quality of life and we wanted to give him that opportunity. Yeah. And when you were presented with um, the intervention, were they giving you, was there a lot of optimism that he would be fine or was it still very much like these are, there were risks associated? Oh, um, yeah, there are risks associated. I mean, no, I wouldn't say it was rosy by any means. I feel like like I read through my notes actually fairly recently Mm -hmm. that um, they went over that, like, you know, what happens if his kidneys stop functioning, even after we do the, the surgery, they explained that he would continue to have like pressure on his lungs and they wouldn't be able to expand um, and he wouldn't have fluid around him and everything we did might not work mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and then they explained that we can't tell you, we can't, we can't predict how his lungs are going to do. We don't know if we will have given him enough fluid for them to develop. Um, and um So, and they said that over and over again, that was like the number one thing we heard from every single doctor, every single time Mm -hmm. they wanted to make sure that (laughs) we knew that they couldn't tell us how well he was going to do or how poorly Mm -hmm. he was going to do, um, in the lung side of things. Um, they were very clear that his kidneys were in bad shape and there was irreparable damage already done. Um, Mm -hmm. and that he would be looking at renal failure shortly after birth if it doesn't occur in utero Mm -hmm. um so yeah that was all explained very clearly to us um with all of that said like the doctors you know we received nothing but wonderful care and Mm -hmm. compassion um they wanted to do everything um available that we wanted to do and they were just really good partners in that um 
and just very supportive for what was going to be right with our family. Um, so after all the like the major testing was done um, prior to the first surgery, um, we had like a two hour meeting with like 12 different providers um, and the social worker and all of that just so that we would know like what does this mean for for you guys um, and your son and your your older sons mm -hmm. um, because those are all considerations too um, so uh, I mean the notes from one of the doctors said like we explained all of these things and the parents were visibly and understandably and appropriately upset. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was breaking down in that um, meeting, just knowing like they were presenting us with, yes, we can do this for you. And I was just devastated that this was going to be my life. Um, I was most likely not going to be able to work anymore, which I enjoy my profession and um, yeah, but dialysis is a full-time job and like, what does this look like for our older kids? We're not going to be able to travel anymore. We're not going to be able to, I mean, I don't even know what it would look like in COVID. I'm sure it would be horrendous. Um, I don't know how you keep illness out of your family, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, with a two-year-old and a four-year-old, um, so yeah, it was pretty significant lifestyle changes that we were looking at, um, as well as just caring for a medically complex child for the rest of our lives. Um, and with the intention of like both me and Caleb probably, hopefully giving him a kidney at some point in our lives. I mean, that was, you know, we we're just, yeah, looking at ongoing medical concerns forever and also just exiting the workforce and raising at three children, um, one of them being medically complex. It was just very overwhelming. Yeah. I can only imagine that it's, it would already be so devastating to know that there's something wrong with your child. And like, I can just imagine like seeing that scan when you said that there was just that mass and like how heart wrenching that would be. And then to also have to picture anything for your child that's less than, you know, the ideal life is painful. And then, like you said, there's so many layers that we don't think about how it's going to impact your other kids, how it's going to impact you having to give him possibly a kidney or getting to give him a kidney. You know, there's so much to receiving a diagnosis like this that I think we don't really think about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and this diagnosis is so frustrating. Like I, I think I had mentioned earlier, it's like a very insignificant malformation in the urinary tract that causes all of this. So, I mean, in the end, my son died because he couldn't pee. Um, and like, had he been outside of the like womb and we could manage all of this, mm -hmm. um, like the fix is literally catheterization. Like it is so easy to fix. And so all of this happened because one tiny little thing went wrong. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that other lost moms can relate to that. Um, our lost parents just, 
one tiny little thing went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it's so frustrating and so infuriating. And I think you had mentioned to me that you knew somebody who had received the same diagnosis and their son is now fine. Is that? Yeah. So I've connected with a few, um, Ludo moms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also have another friend who received a similar diagnosis, but not mm-hmm. the same thing in real life. Um, who are they're very good friends of ours. Um, and they had received that diagnosis after Harlan had died. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, so I have witnessed um, one Ludo family, um, you know, raise their miracle baby. Um, he just recently received his kidney and it's just absolutely wonderful. Um, and then I've witnessed this other family who's close to us um, in our life um, receive a very horrible diagnosis um, and see other people and their re- responses and just like a bit of me is triggered by like some of the same things that I heard in pregnancy and I was just feeling really like feeling really hard for her like oh you have to navigate some of these dismissive comments or Mm -hmm. people don't understand what this means um and when that happened like when they got their diagnosis I thought what is it, what am I supposed to do here? I am in like the throes of grief, like myself, like how am I supposed to like walk with them through this? It's going to be impossible for me to witness a miracle Mm. and it's going to be impossible for me to witness their baby dying possibly, you know, like just honestly a mind bender. And, um, just very hard time in my grief. Um, that was, um, and then I've also connected with Ludo moms who didn't receive the same set of circumstances that we did. Their mm-hmm. babies were not, their kidneys weren't functioning or they did have a genetic, um, component and they weren't able to continue on with the, you know, with intervention. And so they decided to terminate their pregnancies out of love for their children. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then you had a surgery um, on him in your utero. Yes. <laughs> that had to have been a crazy experience. Yes. Super scary. Um, so my first two like deliveries were unmedicated vaginal oh. births. <laughs> And I had never, I have never been under anesthesia at all. I've never done any kind of surgery. So like having this be the first surgery I ever had was just terrifying for me. I remember going into pre-op being like, I was freezing. Well, I was, I was shaking and I don't know if it was because it was cold or because I was just so unbelievably nervous. Um, But the surgery is minimally invasive. So it's done laparoscopically. Mm. which is still really crazy. But anyway, they, they, um, I got a spinal and they gave me a cocktail is what they called it, which was just great. It felt like 
I had been drinking a few margaritas. So honestly, like that was, <laughs> it was, it was pretty nice. Um, so just to help with my nerves, um, but they, yeah, so they, and what they do is they insert a little, a shunt, a little curly tube into his bladder. Um, so one end would rest in his bladder and the other end would sit outside of his abdomen. Um, mm -hmm. and that would allow the urine to pass from his bladder out into the amniotic sac. Um, so all in all the surgery from like start to finish, um, like once they like punctured or, or whatnot, I mean, it's like 20 minutes. So yeah. they do some other stuff like amnio infusion. So they put saline into the amniotic sac. So they have more room to do what, what they need to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, you know, they, they did that. Um, they were able to put the shunt in my water didn't break. Wow. I didn't go into labor. Everything was wonderful. His bladder was decompressed. He literally looked like a normal baby. He was swimming around in like 20 centimeters of fluid. Um, how, it was a really good day. <laughs> oh, wow. How many weeks were you at that point? 21. Okay. So this was pretty, pretty soon after the, the diagnosis then they just kind of did it as soon as they could. Yeah. So I mentioned, so diagnosis I received at 19 weeks, there was a little bit of a delay in between diagnosis and having the surgery. Mm -hmm. um, it's not super uncommon for that to happen. You have to, you have to gather more information um, and run all that testing. Um, but so my big day of testing was done at a hospital in a state few states away from us. Um, and the day after testing is when I had my first surgery. So it was very quick mm -hmm. to make the decision that we're going to proceed with intervention, um, mm -hmm. to scheduling surgery the next day. Wow. Oh my gosh. And it's like, on the one hand, I feel like it can be frustrating when things are moving slowly. And then it's also like, so overwhelming when things are moving quickly, like it's, just so many things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like it was definitely a blur. Like it was a blur until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And so after this surgery, were you both feeling really good? Were you still kind of keeping like the risks in mind or, or how were you feeling afterwards? Yeah. So we were really, really hopeful. Um, <laughs> like all signs were pointing to like Harlan was meant to get this the the surgery done and I thought this is the last one that we're gonna have to do mm. so um I said I thought this is just going to work the whole time we're not going to have to think about this again we're just gonna go do weekly ultrasounds and monitor him and um stay pregnant as long as possible so you know, after you mess with your, um, uterus and amniotic sac, like chances of preterm labor are, um, increased. Uh, so we were told like, you're probably not going to make it to 36 weeks. Mm. If you make it to 36 weeks, that's awesome. Um, that's what we're going to hope for. They also said like these shunts migrate. <laughs> so oh. it's not uncommon to have to have a few procedures done. 
So, um, so if the shunt comes out, then what we would do is put in another one um, and then hope, for, hope that that one works. Um, so yeah, the average shunt for this condition is two and a half. <laughs> so between okay. two and three. Yeah. yeah. And how many did you end up having? I ended up having three. Okay. Yeah. So um, the first one worked. Um, everything looked wonderful. We got on the plane the next day, came home, did some resting. Um, I was pretty much on like modified bed rest the entire pregnancy after that point. Mm -hmm. um, just to reduce risk of rupturing membranes. Um, so yeah, came home, then just went on with the plan to monitor weekly at my um, high-risk doctor in town. Um, so we did that, things were going well. Um, but shortly after, uh, maybe about two and a half or three weeks after the first, surgery, um, Harlan's abdomen started filling up with fluid. Oh, yeah. So, um, it was clear that the shunt, like the exiting end of the shunt had slipped inside of his body. Mm -hmm. So it was still in his, his bladder. Um, but now urine was draining into his abdomen instead of the amniotic sac. So, mm -hmm. um, we scheduled another surgery um, at that facility a couple states away, um, and, um, did another shunt and that one worked as well. Um, surgery was successful. His, so what they did this time is they put a shunt from his abdomen out into the amniotic sac, um, because, his, his bladder was already decompressed. So it was like a few drainage systems out into the amniotic sac. Mm. Um, so that was good. Um, however, in one of the ultrasounds there, um, I saw like something floating around in the amniotic sac. And I was like, what is that? And they're like, oh, that's your membranes. <laughs> they began to separate. Um, it's like, oh, wow. So I, I mean, I don't, I didn't know anything about it, but apparently there are two layers and, um, one of the layers had just fallen off. So they're just weakened. So it was in a pretty, pretty rough shape. They said they weren't going to be doing any more surgeries. Um, logistically it wouldn't be good <laughs> because the more you keep interrupting, like, like going into the uterus and doing all this stuff, like you're just causing more problems. Mm. Um, so my chances of my water breaking and going into labor um, in a state that is really far away from my hometown and my children, my older children, um, wasn't a good idea. And we agreed with the um, our providers um, at that point that this would be it. And we were just gonna hope that it would work for the remainder of the pregnancy. So um, again, came home, did some more monitoring. Um, this time I got a nice belly rash from the like pre-op, the prep, I don't know, it was miserable. 
it was so miserable, so itchy. Um, and that lasted for like three or four weeks. I, anyway, that's awful. <laughs> a little aside. Um, yeah. Yeah. I felt like Job, like, <laughs> like really God, like, why are you like, why am I having to go through this? Like, yeah. my, like I'm already doing all of this. And then now I've got this stupid rash Yeah, that is just making my life literally miserable. Like I'd have to leave work because I couldn't stand having clothes on my belly. Um, so I would just, or close my door and just like lift my shirt up. (laughs) So just letting it all hang out at work. Yeah. And glamorous pregnancy. Yeah. It's interesting because after, um, my son was stillborn. I also found out that I'm allergic to the underwear that they give you. I was just like, cool. Let's just add this on to this is great. Like I, luckily my rash only lasted like a few days, but I was still like, this is awful. (laughs) terrible. Yeah, for sure. Hi friends. I just want to pause our conversation for one quick second and ask for a favor from you. If you could, wherever you are listening to this podcast, if you've been enjoying The Morning Dub, would you please just uh, give me a rating and write a little review? Um, It could be two words, it can be 25 words, whatever you feel. um, I would greatly appreciate that. It would be such a help to me and to this podcast, and it would help us Um, just grow our audience so that more people can hear these stories, that we can encourage empathy, and that we can reach more people and normalize this grief experience. Thanks so much, and we'll get right back to the episode. Yeah, I came home, did some more monitoring. I feel like it was even shorter this time where things weren't going good. Um, His abdomen started filling up with... um, fluid again. Um, we couldn't find the second shunt. We didn't know where it was. We just kind of assumed that it had migrated somewhere. Mm. Um, at, at delivery, it was found around his umbilical cord. So it probably got wrapped around his umbilical cord and got pulled out that way. Mm. Um, so that was, second one, I, or second failure. Um, yeah. After getting that news, like I had to, I had to go get a dentist appointment, like had to go to a dental appointment. And I, you know, during COVID you have to fill out those questionnaires. Like, have you traveled out of the state by airplane or whatnot? And I, I had to check. Yes. And I just started bawling, like at my dentist appointment, just, it was just, and they're like, okay, crazy lady. Like, it's just the COVID questionnaire. Um, But yeah, the mental stress and just the stress that I was under is just unreal. It was just really hard to feel like you couldn't do anything for them, especially because we had been told like, that was it. No more surgeries. Like that had to work. Um, so at that point I just felt completely helpless. Yeah. 
It's like, we've done all this and there's nothing else we can do. Um, so yeah, that kind of started this new um, phase in my pregnancy where I was just really antsy, like, like it was really nice to be able to have all these surgeries to feel like you were being productive and now I couldn't. Um, so anyway, we started making plans um, to figure out delivery because my local hospital couldn't handle a baby born with the needs that Harlan was going to have. So he was like, specifically, they couldn't do dialysis on a baby that small. Mm -hmm. um, so I needed to find a hospital close by, close-ish by that would be able to accommodate him. Um, and we were planning on figuring out like I was gonna have to move close closer by because you know if you go into labor you have to be near the hospital that you're going to be delivering at um, so a lot of stressful um, planning and arrangements needed to needed to happen um, so we started the referral process to get connected with a hospital that is just one state away three hours away um, and Throughout all of that, we found out that they actually had a fetal care team and they are able to do surgery. Um, so we had a consult there um, to just talk about delivery plan as well as like, well, maybe we can do something for Harlan. Um, so with that care team, we had decided, okay, I think the best decision is to try for a third shunt. We know that my membranes aren't in great shape, um, but it doesn't feel right to not do anything. Like in the meantime, his abdomen is full of fluid. It's pushing on his lungs. Mm. Um, he's like, doesn't have any fluid around him. All of this is uncomfortable. Like, let's see what we can do. So we planned another surgery at a different place. So I've got new providers at this point. Um, and um, that surgery went well and, um, the shunt was placed, his abdomen was decompressed. He had 20 centimeters of fluid around him, everything that we had experienced with the other three, my water didn't break or anything. I didn't go into labor. Um, that was about, I was 28 weeks wow. at this point. Yeah. So it was like every three to four weeks I was having a procedure since the diagnosis, but 28 weeks at this point. Um, so anyway, we, me and Caleb had decided that we would go home. Um, I would have a weekend with my older boys, um, say goodbye and figure out what am I, where am I going to live? So Caleb was going to be living here um, at home. And I was going to be living two hours away. I don't know where, <laughs> um, but we were going to figure that out. So anyway, I was going to have my last hoorah back at home, say bye to the kids um, and then figure out what was going on. So anyway, got discharged from the hospital the next day, um, drove home and I just really wanted to take a nap because I had had just gotten off of like a night of fetal monitoring, mm -hmm. uh, which is just not conducive to sleep um, at all. So I was just exhausted. Um, 
I think I had like some like weird sixth sense premonition thing going on. Um, but my, my phone had completely died, um, throughout that day and I didn't have any battery in it. So I decided to plug it in. I was like, I need to plug it in. Caleb's going to go off to work for a little bit because he needs to get some stuff done. Um, so I'm going to plug it in just in case I need to get a hold of him. Um, and then I was like, and I'm going to empty my bladder because I want to know if my water is going to break. <laughs> like I need to know if my water breaks. Um, so I did that. And then I went down for a nap and then I woke up an hour later and to my water breaking, which was terrifying. Um, I was just like in complete shock. I was like, oh no, no, no. Like this is the thing that we didn't want to happen and yeah. now it's happening. And like, I'm alone and like, what do I do? Do I, I'm already, I'm like back at home. I'm not near my hospital. Like yeah. what do I do? Um, so I call my, my doctor here in town and they didn't answer because it was like past business hours on a Friday. Um, and then I call my they and they were like you need to go to actually I called them she my doctor wasn't there um but the the front office was like you need to go to the hospital um in town um to get checked out and to make sure you're not in labor um I was like I don't I was like I don't know I'm gonna call my other doctors um who just did the surgery um so I called them and they're like are you having contractions like um, any of that, like, are there any signs of labor? I said, no, I'm not. I'm like, I'm fairly certain that my water's broke. That's all I know. Like, it's mm -hmm. just like, keeps coming. It just like keeps gushing out so much water. Um, so anyway, they're like, okay, I think you need to hop in the car and come back. I think you'll be fine and you'll make it. You don't want to go to your local hospital because then they'll admit you and you'll have to get like ambulanced over which would just add to my million dollar medical bill. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, we made the trek back, um, the two and a half, three hour drive back to where I was planning on delivering. Um, I didn't have like any contraction. I had maybe like two contractions, like mm -hmm. Braxton Hicks contractions on the way there. Um, but I just had like an, a real calm about me. Like after mm -hmm. my water broke, things really slowed down. Um, I didn't have worries anymore. It's like, I've done everything I can for my son. And I'm just gonna, like, I, like, it was like the one time I was able to just enjoy being pregnant and kind of soak in the time that I had. Um, so yeah, anyway, I got, Caleb did not feel the same way driving to the hospital. He made really good time. We got there really quickly. Um, he still has like a little bit of PTSD from my last delivery in which I had an accidental home birth. Um, <laughs> so he was expecting that I was going to deliver um, Harlan in the car, but I didn't think that was going to happen. So anyway, we made it and I was kind of, hit. I was in a really good mood. I was joking around with everybody. I was like, I would really love it. I said, I think my water broke. I would really love it. If you could just tell me that I peed my pants, I'm fine with that. I'd rather have peed my pants than my water broke. Um, 
anyway, they did all of the, um, I got put into triage. They did all the things and they um, determined that I did, my water did in fact break. So 24 hours before I had 20 centimeters of fluid and I had about five um, at that point. And um, yeah, so I got admitted into the hospital again and um, I got settled in and made that home. Um, and again, the plan was just to stay pregnant for as long as possible. Um, it was a really uneventful hospital stay. Um, as we got closer to the 34 week mark, which is as long as they were going to let me go mm -hmm. um, for a P-prom, um, which is premature rupture of the membranes. Um, so yeah, risk to me and baby began to increase the longer that you're pregnant. So anyway, 34 mm -hmm. weeks was as long as they were going to go. Harlan was transverse lie and wasn't moving around um, because he didn't have any room to move around. So once we got closer to that 34 week mark, we planned a C-section um, for exactly 34 weeks on the date. Um, I remember my doctor saying, I think December 15th sounds like a perfect time to have your baby. Um, so we had it scheduled for December 15th and um, yeah, it was mostly uneventful and we made it, made it there. Um, and, and Harlan was born. <laughs> um, At this point, are you still feeling hope or was it pretty... Were, were people giving you, were, were doctors giving you any indicator of what it would look like after he was born or was it still kind of like, we can't really say how his lungs will be? Yeah, it was always, we can't, we can't tell you what his lungs are going to be. Again, everyone was just really supportive. Like, you know, everyone had done everything that they could. Everyone yeah. had tried as hard as possible to give him a really good shot. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it was mostly just same old, same old, like it was checking vitals and doing non-stress tests and um, asking the same old, same questions, like, are you having a fever, any change in movements, any, um, you know, any leaking of fluid? I said, no. <laughs> They're like, oh, that's a good thing. I was like, no, because I don't have any fluid. Yeah. <laughs> Um, got to explain Harlan's, um, condition to a lot of nurses and doctors who I met, which I met like a hundred, not even, um, exaggerating, probably like 120 people touched my chart and knew wow. me, um, as I was in the hospital for six weeks. Um, again, away from my family, um, that whole time, but we made it, <laughs> um, yeah, we had a conversation with, we had had a few conversations with NICU, um, the neonatal intensive care unit, because we knew he'd probably be there for a long time. We were told like, expect four months, mm. um, like at a minimum in the NICU, um, even if like things are going good, <laughs> expect that. Um, so we had had a lot of conversations with them and um, they explained to me, what um, it would look like 
in delivery, um, what were the various scenarios that we might witness when Harlan's born? Um, so he might be born crying and just complete miracle rock star. And I would get to spend some time with him in the OR. Um, he might need a little bit of breathing help with a cannula or CPAP. Um, and then they would take him up to the NICU to assess urology and nephrology, the kidney stuff. <laughs> um, in more detail, or he might need to be intubated um, and needs significant breathing assistance. Um, so when he was born, he fell into that category. He needed significant breathing assistance and he was taken pretty much immediately from the OR. And um, yeah, then he had a pretty rough first day. He, um, yeah, you know, it, they have to put in lines and just all this stuff. Um, so I got wheeled back up to recovery and um, he, he had a lot of stuff going on. Caleb wasn't allowed in. A lot of these were like sterile procedures. So we were kind of separated from Harlan pretty much that whole first day. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't get to meet. So surgery, like C-section was at 9 a.m. And I didn't meet him until 5.30 p.m. Wow. Yeah. That was hard. That would be so hard. Yeah. Yeah. When you were in the hospital um, with him before your C-section, did you feel like you were able to kind of connect with him or um, like, was that similar with your other pregnancies at all? I think I was able to connect with him a little bit. Like I wasn't like I, in my mind, like I was taking Harlan home um, no matter what. Like I had a lot of hope that you know, we, you know, bad things don't happen to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we did all of this stuff. We did all the right things. Um, so he's coming home. Like I didn't go, go through all of this for nothing. Yeah. Um, so I didn't, I didn't ever like, like purposely distance myself from him. Yeah. Um, I can say that like my relationship with him in like, while I was pregnant was more of one of like, like actual physical self-sacrifice and a lot of worry and a lot of taking in knowledge and understanding his condition and figuring out like, what does this mean for him? So it was all very medical, which yeah. I'm sure medical moms might understand all of that, but it was a lot of trying to, um, just understand his medical needs rather than like, oh, he's always kicking at this part of the day, or he likes when I'm singing, or he likes when I'm eating this food. Like I didn't, I didn't really think of those things all that much. Um, I was, I did enjoy listening to his heartbeat when we did the non-stress test. So I had twice daily non-stress tests. Um, and so that was, was nice. And I was always really proud of him. Like I always knew where he was. Um, he always passed his non-stress tests. So <laughs> I, I love that feeling and yeah. And being proud of your kids, even though they're, it's so funny because <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's such a weird feeling of pride. It's like, they're doing the bare minimum, but we're just so proud of them. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and then, so you were able to then meet him at like 5.30 p.m. And how was that? 
Um, it was good and overwhelming. Like, so we were prepared for the NICU. Like I was prepared for him to be like this and to, to have problems. I was hopeful that he wouldn't, but I was also like, like I knew what it was going to look like. Um, Mm -hmm. I knew what it was going to look like up there. I knew what our relationship for the first four months of his life was going to look like. We were going to be hanging out in the NICU a lot and we weren't going to be able to take him home right away. Like, so I was shielded a bit from like, like it wasn't shocking. Um, it sucked. I mean, I wanted to see his face and to like, you know, cause with being intubated, you can't see their face. They've mm-hmm. got stuff, you know, tape on, on their mouth. And, um, yeah, so it's not easy seeing your baby like that for sure. But, um, you know, we were just kind of letting him rest that day after all of what he went through. Um, so yeah, then began our, our NICU stay and I had decided like, I wanted to like get going on stimulating breast milk production. And I had really like, I was like, if, if, if I can't do any, anything, I'm going to give him my breast milk. And so had really like worked hard to like get that going because I knew like what a full-time pumping like job was going to be. Um, and I wanted to get off on a head start. So it was always, it was like back and forth between my, my recovery room to pump and to stimulate and then back up to the NICU. Um, so we kind of just figured out our routine. Caleb really took, um, the lead on, like, he spent more time with Harlan, I think, while Harlan was alive than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, he was up there all the time. He always wanted to be there for rounds, um, meeting all the doctors and the nurses and getting an idea of what was going on. So that was his routine. He was very, um, involved with, caring for Harlan how he could. Um, mm-hmm. And I was very involved with caring for Harlan how I thought I could. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what we did. And again, we were ready for for this and to, to have some of the conversations that we ended up having. Um, but yeah, so that's, that was the beginning of our NICU stay. Um, a, few, a few days, after, um, yeah, I mean, he, Harlan lived for four, four days. He died on his fifth day. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the first three days was just par for the course. And then on the fourth day, like the doctor, we had just, sorry, those first three days we were like working on weaning settings on the ventilator, trying to get things down, um, working on weaning sedation medication and all of the stuff to just help his body do more work rather than the machines and all of that. Mm-hmm. So um, on the fourth day, the pediatric surgeons wanted to have a conversation with us because um, they, everyone was very concerned he wasn't urinating and that his kidneys had completely failed and we were going to need to start dialysis soon. Um, they said like within the week, we believe we're going to need to start doing dialysis. Um, and so we got brought into a meeting with the pediatric surgeons and the neonatologists, um, and social work, which whenever they bring social work in, you just, it's like, why are you here? 
like, I don't want you to be here. Um, like, I know you have an important job, but like, I know that we're going to be getting bad news when you're here. Mm-hmm. So, um, they explained that he was going to need to, to start dialysis soon. And so we need to start thinking about doing the surgery to get the dialysis catheter placed. Um, and they needed us to know how sick his lungs were, um, so that we could make some decisions. So they said he's on very, very high settings and we're not making the kind of progress that we would like to make. Um, and so they asked us like, what did you, what do you envision for Heartland? Like, what is, what do you envision his life to be? Um, and sorry. Um, we, I had said like, you know, I, I envisioned for Harlan to like, we're not, we're not surprised that he needs to be on dialysis. Like I envisioned him to be on dialysis. I envisioned, um, him receiving a kidney when he was two years old. Um, I envisioned him maybe needing some oxygen support in the form of a cannula, like that we take home. Um, as I like, I wasn't envisioning for him to have a trach placed, um, because he would never be able to have that taken out. Um, and they explained that, you know, with a trach placement, um, it, it makes it harder for, like, you have to be a relatively healthy individual um, in order to receive an organ transplant and they weren't certain he would, um, be a healthy enough individual eventually to receive an organ transplant. So this is, um, the conversation that we had. They said, you know, we can go forward with, um, surgery for the dialysis and just take our time on everything else. We're still exploring what his lungs can do and we can, we can move forward with this, but we need you to know like what his prognosis looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, we were left with that information and just absolutely devastated. Like from our standpoint, it was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like he's coming down on the vet settings. Like his lungs are gonna be fine. He's gonna be fine. We went through all of this. Like if, he wasn't supposed to live and supposed to come home. Like, why were we able to do the surgeries and why did they keep, like, why, <laughs> not yeah. why did they keep working? Cause they kept failing, but like, <laughs> why did my water not break? And why did I stay pregnant for so long? And like, mm-hmm. um, I just said, I, I don't know when I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to know when to stop fighting. Like we've been fighting for so long. Like, I don't know when to stop fighting. How do you stop? how do you give up I put it in quotations um on your child yeah so um anyway we took that night to just discuss seek out counsel pray cry grieve it's really hard um, but we had decided that we wanted to get all of the teams together. So we had like up to this point, we had just had little meetings with um, all of the different subspecialties. We hadn't um, had a chance to 
get everyone together. And so we wanted a bigger, like a better picture, like full picture. Um, so we had decided first thing in the morning, we would request that um, of everyone. So anyway, we, in the morning, woke up at five in the morning, um, started getting ready to go up there and we get a phone call um, from neonatology. And they said like, Harlan's abdomen has started filling with air and this is um, emergency. This is an emergency. Um, we need you to come up so we can talk about what's going on. Um, so we, it was explained to us that his, his bowel had perforated, um, which is not uncommon with premature babies. Mm. Um, necessarily but it needed to be handled right away like it was an emergency surgery it needed to be fixed um there can be a lot of really bad complications from this um sepsis <laughs> um yeah so just not not a good thing that happened um but what that meant for us um and we got brought into another meeting with the social work and everyone else <laughs> at this point um, we were, it was explained that we, that meant dialysis was off the table because they would need to, um, repair the bowel and it would need six to eight weeks of recovery time in order to do dialysis. Um, I don't think I got into the type of dialysis they, they do on babies, but Anyway, it's done in the peritoneum, which is that area. So having open wounds um, in an area that should be sterile is just, so anyway, that's why dialysis was off the table. Yeah. Um, so like we just knew at that point, like that was, that was, that was Harlan saying he was tired and done. And that was, that was our sign that like, we're done here. Um, we need to start making memories and um, all of that. But we had decided that we would withdraw care. Um, so at that point we did start making memories. Um, we were able to, they, they put us, they put, we were able to hold him for the first time um, right away. And it took like four people to get him in our arms with all of the um, tubes and, and whatnot. Um, at that time he, he opened his eyes for us. And um, that was the first time like we had seen him look at us and um, it was really nice. <laughs> He was really grumpy, <laughs> but he was really cute. Um, uh, yeah, so we just made hand molds and cut some hair. Um, at some point we decided like, oh, we can like zoom in, in and talk to our parents and they had never met him. We had never thought to like video conference with our baby in the NICU up until this point. So we called everybody um, and they got to meet their, you know, their grandchild over 
um, Zoom. <laughs> and um, yeah, we got all day. Um, so his his abdomen started filling up with air throughout this whole time, but he was tolerating it really well. Wow. Um, so like our nurses were saying like, he's doing really good. Like, um, so yeah, we got, I mean, pretty much all day we got this news around. I feel like we, we made the decision to withdraw care at 9 a.m. Um, we didn't remove the breathing tube until like 6 p.m. Um, so we got a lot of good time holding him and cuddling him. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so then eventually we decided it was time, like, we were never going to have enough time with him. Yeah. Um, so we, um, told them we were ready and then they went, took out the breathing tube and it was the first time I got to see his little face without the tape on his mouth. He was so beautiful. He looked just like my middle son <laughs> they all are little clones but um yeah then we got another hour and a half or so with him before he was gone um we just got to hold him and listen to music and talk to him and there was a lot of you know a real peace about it I'm really thankful that like, I don't have any kinds of regrets that it just feels like all my decisions ended up being made for me. Yeah. Um, so like, I don't have to struggle with some of those things that I know a lot of other families do. I don't have any what ifs. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. When you were, so all of the decisions that you had made, did you really feel like, like they weren't difficult decisions to make? I mean, no, all of them were difficult decisions. Yeah. <laughs> but the nat I was like, the nature of them were, it's just difficult. Like, yeah. It, they're impossible decisions to make. Yeah. Um. But they were the right decisions, yeah, for us. Um, and so those were they in that sense that they were easy. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I, I know for a lot of moms who, well, a lot of parents, um, I've just heard that they kind of feel like they get to this point where it's like, I wish this decision was taken from me, like. I didn't have to make the decision. Yeah. And I, I think, think that's ultimately what I feel like did happen. Yeah. Except for in those first two weeks when I said like, all right, if like I have a miscarriage, I'm going to be okay with it. I like yeah. think back to that point. I'm like, I mean, I wouldn't be okay with it. Like with yeah. everything I, you know, I would never have wanted Harlan to miss. I would never have wanted to miscarry with Harlan. 
um, even experiencing all this. I don't understand why this had to happen. I don't know if it had to happen at all, but like, I don't know why it did happen. Um, mm -hmm. But I know it was better for him to have existed and to have lived and died than to not. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel like you have changed since Harlan? <laughs> I feel like I'm like a completely different person, but um, overall I'm much more empathetic. I'm able to like see myself in a lot of different scenarios specifically in like the baby loss community like I can see myself being a TFMR mom mm -hmm. um and I can see myself like being a medical mom or I can see myself um I can see myself having you know having delivered Harlan while he wasn't alive because there was a moment before c-section in which he was really struggling mm -hmm. like if I wasn't in the hospital at that time, like, would I have known he was struggling? I don't think so. Yeah. Like I can, I can put myself into all of these different shoes and I would never want anyone to tell me that they know how I feel or they can, can imagine what I'm feeling, but like to actually imagine, um, I think is really important and yeah. to like, to try to, to put yourself in someone's shoes, um, and actually like sit in that and um, understand like the depths of this pain. Um, so I do that all the time. <laughs> I didn't used to like cry or be emotional or anything like that. And I'm, <laughs> I cry all the time, I cry every day. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I tell my kids I love them like, I don't know, too many times a day. I don't know if there's too many times, but um, yeah. I'm yeah. trying to be a better daughter. Like, you know, I don't always get along with my parents all the time. And I like having a relationship with my kids means everything to me. And I want to make that work for me and my parents. And um, yeah, I mean, I like myself more mm. now. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just a better person. Sometimes I look at, like, look back at the things that I've said or done and I can have a bit of guilt or shame about it, but you know, I'm just a different person. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like what you said. I like myself more. Um, I think that's something that we all have the ability to get to that place in grief. And it's hard because you don't want to find any kind of silver lining. No. <laughs> but, but it is it is really special when you can look at your growth and also look at your ability to have empathy and your new capacity for it. And I think for me, it's like, I now have the ability to go into the darkness 
Whereas before I was always more afraid of it. And it's like, I can go there, like you said, with being able to stretch yourself to imagine being a TFMR mom or having these different experiences. It's like now having the willingness to, to go there has made me so much deeper of a person than I was before. And I'm grateful for that, but I'm not thankful for the way that it happened. Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking like there has to be a way to like teach this or like, yeah, I'm not sure. Like I really am. And that's like my mission these days is to like share what it feels like. Cause I'm like, if, if you only knew then, then you would like maybe not say like, oh, everything happens for a reason or some other like platitude or dismissive comment that is really hurtful. Mm-hmm. Like if you knew and you were able to like feel this, then you wouldn't say those things. Um, so I like, sometimes I feel, I sometimes I feel like it's not possible, <laughs> but I'll just keep trying. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly why I started this podcast was I was hopeful that by hearing other people's stories, people would gain more empathy and then start thinking about, okay, how do I say things that maybe aren't helpful? And I look back and I even like shudder at the things that I said before, you know, experiencing this. Yeah. It's like a lot of stupid stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, is there anything else about Harlan's story that you would like to share anything about just him as a person or what your pregnancy and and family was like because of him? I, I don't know. I just miss him a lot. Yeah. It's hard to like imagine my family being any different and I like (laughs) I wish that I could but it's too painful sometimes to think like well what would it be like to have Harlan here and what would it be like if he was completely healthy and what would it be like if he was sick um and anyway I guess just that I love him (laughs) can't wait to see him again one day you know yeah um yeah yeah he's always got a spot in our family and um he's on full display everywhere and I talk about him all the time I'm sure people are tired of it but I always think back to like what is it like being a new mom with a living baby yeah and you get flooded with all of their stuff you know I'm just laying there not doing anything so I'm trying not to be too hard on myself I'm going to keep talking about my kid. Yeah. (laughs) Just like any new mom would. Yeah. And thank you for talking about him because it, it makes it so much better of an experience. I mean, not better, but so much easier (laughs) of an experience for us other lost moms. Yeah. It's, it's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, before we close, what is one piece of advice that you would give someone who is in the midst of grief? I think the most beneficial thing that I learned, and I thankfully learned it really early on, um, was the both and mentality, um, Mm -hmm. that there's joy and 
there's pain um and whatever other false dichotomies we try to like put it put around all of this but um yeah I just remember I came home from the hospital and I hadn't seen my older boys for you know a long time six weeks yeah and they were just cracking me up they were hilarious and I was I was belly laughing and I had to hold my c-section scar because you know, they were making me laugh. And I thought, this is so wrong. How can I be laughing? Um, meanwhile, like the, in the night, I'm holding my C-section scar because I'm just sobbing uncontrollably, just convulsing from crying. And I can have both. <laughs> yeah. And I do have both. And just letting them take up that same space. Um, it's easier. <laughs> it's easier on your brain. Um, and your, and your heart to allow that to happen. Yeah. That has helped me so immensely too. And I don't even remember like when I heard of the concept of the both and, but I remember it just like clicked for me and I was like, oh, I know what it was. It was thinking about, um, the movie inside out. Um, <laughs> like and- a good movie. Everyone yeah. go watch it again. Yeah, it's a good one. My husband hasn't seen it yet, so oh. we want to have like a cry fest. I'll put it on. Yeah. Well, Christine, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you sharing Harlan's story. Um, I know this is going to touch a lot of people, and as always, it's just so helpful to hear other stories and to also feel just like that familiarity. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me and giving me an opportunity to share him. You're so welcome. Christine, where can everyone find you? Um, I share a bit about Harlan and just my life on Instagram. I'm talking more about grief there than anywhere else. Um, Anyway, my handle is hard to explain via verbally but um I'm sure it'll be in the show notes but it's like Christine Andrea with lots of e's and lots of a's so (laughs) yeah just find that down below or something yeah that'll be down below and I will also be tagging you on Instagram when we post the um the episode so it'll be there too (laughs) okay (laughs) okay Christine thank you so much I really appreciate it thank you Thanks for joining us today. I hope our conversation brought you encouragement and strength, as well as the permission to give yourself grace. To learn more about the Morning Dove podcast and to engage with our grief community, you can join us on Instagram at Morning Dove Pod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a beautiful day.